Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss everyone deserves to enjoy a McRib at least once in their lifetime because when you're this saucy and tangy and tasty a life without one creates a serious case of FOMO the McRib is back don't miss the classic you've been craving. Get a McRib, filet of fish or Big Mac, and get another for a dollar. Or mix and match. Prices and participation may vary. Valid for item of equal or lesser value. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. USAA. Restrictions apply. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. With Drake releasing Way Too Sexy with rappers Future and Young Thug as the first single from his sixth studio album, Certified Loverboy, the track I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred, which this track from Drake relies heavily upon, has come back into focus. A worldwide hit in 1991, I'm Too Sexy even topped the US charts. Written by Richard and Fred Fairbrass, along with Rob Manzoli, it's a track which has seeped into popular culture over the years. I called up with the brothers Richard and Fred to talk about their journey to recording their most famous track and how it has stood the test of time. Well, this is an absolute pleasure. I mean, really, an amazing pleasure because it takes me back to my sort of heyday on MTV, <laughs> which is wonderful. So I'm thrilled uh, to be here with both of you today and we're all of a similar age so you know we can be nice and honest and talk about our lives in a really uh hopefully honest and open way um one thing I wanted to talk to you about was really about your when when you were growing up and um what sort of music did your parents listen to and what sort of music did you then start listening to how did you react against their taste dad didn't listen to any music Mum listened to Dean Martin, yeah, uh, Frank Sinatra, 
Trini Lopez. Glenn Miller. Glenn Miller. Then we got some friends of theirs who, who now looking back, I think it was a gay couple. But at the time, you just, because I was a kid, I thought just mates. But they went, these two guys went traveling. Oh. And, sorry, there's a top of the door. And they left us with a huge collection of records, at which point I got into early Motown, um, early Stones, um, a little bit of Beatles. Um, so that was what we were, when we were very young. That's what we grew up on. And then, and then after that, I, st- um, I started getting into, well, we both did. We got into rock initially. We were Deep Purple fans. Led Zeppelin. Led Zepp, um, uh, Yardbirds I liked, um, Credence. And then, um, then I thought, I think through the 70s, we started discovering a bit of electronica, um, the whole New York scene. I thought bands like uh, 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 television, I liked a lot. We saw what about personally music? What music did, were you, were you pushed into um, learning music? I mean, yeah. I remember as a kid, my mum, you know, bought a piano and then off I went and had piano lessons. <laughs> By the time I was 12, she sold it because I was so bad. Okay. <laughs> but but no, were you were you sort of brought up in a way that that uh, they wanted you to play music? They wanted you to learn no. music. Not at all. No. no. So how did that come about? Well, we, we sort of just we sort of slid into it really. I mean, Fred started playing guitar when he was how old? Eleven or twelve. About Eleven or twelve, mm-hmm. uh, and writing songs. And I remember thinking, and he would pa- pass the ideas past me, kind of thing, just a similar thought. And I remember thinking that some of them were pretty good and some of the lyrics were good. Um, and then we just, and I think really the, the prospect of any ordinary job didn't really appeal to us, to be no. honest, honest with you. You know, I couldn't see myself doing a, we don't take orders very well, which is why we have a big problem with what's going on right now. Um, so we, we tended to be, search out an alternative way of living. And we, we initially ran a gym in Putney. Um, but but prior to that, we had been doing gigs. We started doing gigs in London in the late mid to late seventies. Mm, we, we we did a lot of man, manual labour. Yeah, but it was voluntary, really. And, and it yes, was, it was um, it was a bit like joining the services. What I liked about it was you met people that you wouldn't normally meet in any other way, any, yes. other, any other walk of life. You know, you met all sorts of weird and wonderful people doing mm. that. Um, and what did your mother think of you actually sort of pursuing? At the start, I mean, not just playing music at home and playing the guitar, Fred, but yeah. sort of um, also then making a decision and saying, OK, we're going to sort of pursue this in some way. Um, because I could imagine that my parents would have sort of looked at me and sort of laughed, you know. <laughs> yes, I mean, I remember being taken for a walk by Dad. Um, and this was probably about three years before the band, three or four years before the band took off, because uh, he died before the band happened, so he never saw it. Um, but he took me for a walk and he was just thought, sort of fishing about, you know, how old you are and, and uh, have you made any money and um, what you plan to do with your life. And that kind of, he wasn't, he wasn't being, you know, he wasn't saying don't do this or do that. He wasn't being, you know, confrontational in any way. He was just curious to find out what we were thinking. And yeah. of course, you know, at our, at our, we were both in our early 30s when the band broke. And there sure. were, um, and late so, bloomers. Yeah, we were late bloomers. So... You know, the, for them, for mum and dad, I think it was a pretty worrying time. You know, they, they were both quite tolerant because mum was a, a good dancer, and but mum was mum grew up in poverty, 
And um, so um, single parent back in the 30s and 20s and late 20s and 30s was quite a big deal back then. And they were always running from landlords. She told us how she used to live and hiding behind the sofa hiding. when the rent man came. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole stuff and, you know, the sharing, you know, sharing clothes with her sister and you yeah. know, not always a lot of food on the table. Dad came from a bit of money. Um, but after the war, Second World War, he wanted to be a farmer, couldn't, so he became a printer. So they both didn't do what they passionately wanted to do. They both had been forced or driven into not fulfilling their dreams. So when they saw us trying to fulfill our dream, I think they were more passion, more patient yeah. than they otherwise would have been. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a really interesting perception because I think parents of our generation, which were war parents, yes. Um, you know, they, they didn't get the opportunities that no, no. we did, so they saw that saw it completely different. They did, they did, they did very much so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, Richard, you wanted to say something. Yeah, no, I th- and I think they um, they were much more, as Fred says, they were much more patient with us. Um, and I, I mean, one, one of the things I can remember really clearly, was Dad, you know, Dad worked in London, so he was taking a train to and from London for sort of 30 years, on and off, 40 years. And on one occasion, you know, he struggled through the tube and through the, on the train with, a, with an acoustic guitar. You know, in a huge cardboard <laughs> box that must have been an absolute bloody nightmare, yeah. you know, to carry and to yeah. all the, you know, the crush of people. Um, but here, he, there, that, there was that level of support there. Yes, there was. Um, yeah. One of the things back in the day, I mean, and it, which, which was surprising to me, was when they were at school, when they were trying to teach you, you know, music appreciation and how to play, play the piano or whatever it was, they never really made it clear that you could make money at it. That's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, if you can play the piano, you don't even have to read, but if you can play the piano, um, you can get some, you can earn money in a pub pretty much anywhere in the world. We well, used, well, used to be able to. Used to be able to, yeah. yeah. You know. So there was, I think Dad was of that opinion. He, you know, it was a jolly good to be in a, play music and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to earning money, you're going to have to knuckle yeah. down and do mm. a job. I think deep down, that's what mm. he thought. But I, I, I had a teacher know. at school physics teacher who slapped me around the back of the head because I was playing, I was waiting for the class to open. I took my guitar to school a lot so I could practice in breaks and stuff. And uh, I was sitting there playing and he's, you know, stupid. I could see I'm holding a guitar and playing. So what are you doing, Fairbrass? So I'm playing my guitar. And uh, he said, you can't make any money out of that. I said, well, Paul McCartney does. He went, bang, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> me around the head. Yes. <laughs> I hope he lived long enough. That's all I can say. I really did. (laughs) Because then he might think differently. Um, The first band that I read about was the actors. Now, I've been trying to look and find anything on on the actors, and I couldn't find anything. What what sort of band was it, and what sort of music did you play back then? The actors was sort of, um, it was pop, but it was a little bit odd. We had some. We had a very, very good guitar player called Mike Gerrard. So we 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 gave him the room to be quite experimental, and, and we did quite long instrumental sections. Mm. Uh, although, and it was quite energetic most of the time. Perhaps sort of power poppy. A little bit power poppy, yeah. but with sort of moments of instrumentals thrown in. So we we were we our first tour was nineteen seventy eight, and we were on the road with Suicide, who were a New York duo, electronic duo, and through that we did gigs with. Um, Joy uh, cool. Division, yeah. and I think the Addicts and some other bands, um, but we never really fitted in. We always we 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 weren't really we were upbeat but not punky, and the whole Thames beat and power pop thing passed us by. So we were we had a lot of interest. We got we got picked up by various little independent labels where nothing happens. Then we got uh, we got some very good reviews, and basically the thing just petered out after about three years. Yeah. And then Richard and I picked up 
Um, uh, then we went, moved to London pretty much. And then we started just writing with other people, playing other bands. So um, we, we've got a lot of memorabilia from the actors. We've got um, posters, uh, posters and, and, a, and quite, extensive, quite an extensive gig sheet. Yeah. And we did you know, the Nashville, the Marquee. Uh, Hope and Anchor. Yeah. We did pretty much all the main gigs in London and which they've all gone. And colleges, you know. Um, so we did that. And then we basically we we just morphed from one band to another. We were in a, again, we were in and out of record deals um all through the 80s, some appalling, and I'm pleased they just didn't happen. Um <laughs> and then the biggest deal we signed was Capital EMI in America, in New York. Uh, and again, that just didn't happen. The the money disappeared into somebody's back pocket. Um, we never actually we we completed the um, sort of album demos, but we never even started the album. The money just went. Yeah. So um, at which point, this is like nineteen eighty seven, eighty eight. Which point we just think we're not interested in a record deal. Fuck these we, people. We got really bored of the idea. Yeah, yeah, I got tired of asking for permission. I got tired of waiting for them. So we just said, look, so that, that was the idea. When we eventually recorded Don't Be Sexy, the whole point of that was, and us meeting, hooking up with Rob Manzoli, was to let's write a song that none of us have written before. So we, all your ideas we don't want to hear and all our ideas you're not going to hear. Let's write a brand new song. So, um, can I take you back a bit though before we get to the to because I want to go back to the 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 era where you know where you were on stage and you toured and you were supporting suicide and you were you know, and and these really you know big artists. I mean, suicide was a a very instrumental artist in terms of electronic music, you know, people look back and 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 absolutely groundbreaking. Well, yeah, they were they were really groundbreaking. What did you learn from them, and what do you feel that they may have gleaned from you? Because people always say what they learn from other people, but they never ever offer what they feel like other people may have taken from them. Yeah, I mean, I think that the only thing I, I didn't, I had never experienced electronic music until I heard Suicide. I didn't know anything it, about it. It was a head fuck, wasn't it? It was. I, it really was, and I didn't like it. I, I thought it was far too loud. And and uh, I don't know. I, I I suppose I I I was a bit out of place, really, because I kept, we came from the countryside, a very sort of conservative town, um, and then we were mixing with all these alternative type people, and, and I didn't house. truly understand what was going on. I don't think they. I would unless Fred, you know, says different. I don't think they gleaned anything from us at all. The the one no. thing that I gleaned from them was the was volume. That's what I got. And the importance of the of the base end, I suddenly was really aware of that. But okay, tell that, me about that. What is what is the importance of the base end? What is important? Well, it, it's it's um, the the, the base. Um, it's a frequency. That's it's, it's the a sub base they use. Yeah, the sub base sure. they use, and also the base as a, as an instrument can color a, a track completely. Um, it, it it can define the personality of a track much more than I than I thought it could. Um, and I can remember we, we did a gig in Leeds, I think, and the gig was in this in, in this rather isolated kind of uh, club that I, I seem to remember. And we had gone off after the sound check to get a bite to eat, and we were walking back to the gig. And, and 50 yards from the gig, you could hear this, <laughs> this noise. And that's when I suddenly thought, this is, I'd never experienced it before. I, I didn't, because all the, you know, all the bass players that I've grown up with, Paul, I mean, Paul McCartney or, you know, Bill Wyman or whatever, you know, that whole sub-bass thing was new to us, completely new to us. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, so I think we learned, 
And the one thing that I think other people can learn from us, the only thing is perseverance. Well, I think that's what... I think that's the one thing. Really. I, yeah, I, I think yeah. That's, that's what we, we got from suicide. They, they've got a lot of friction from the audiences. Most of the audiences were pretty hostile mm. um, to them, and they just stood their ground. They did not flinch. Um, Martin, um, uh, Alan Vega was just... I didn't realise at the time, but he had he was a pretty ballsy guy. And uh, he would just get on and do his thing. And sometimes they went along to a script to a certain degree. He stuck to the song, but he also, because the, 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 the uh, relentless groove and keyboards that Marty Reva set up, um, they were really uncompromising completely. And basically, and he, you know, he wouldn't take any shit. No, he wasn't a, he like, wasn't a big guy, but he wouldn't take any shit from anybody. A bit like that clip of um, Twisted Sister. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where the guy just goes completely yeah, at Reading at Reading. Yeah, you know? and, um, I, and I, I, I admire bands like whether I like their music or not, it's irrelevant. It, but I, I admire these bands that just this is what we do. If you don't like it, fine. Yeah. If you do like it, great. You yeah, know, yeah. Um, you have to be like. That. There's not much. There was very little compromise. I don't think they learned anything from us. But one thing also I learned from them is that musicians should stick together because we got screwed on the tour a couple of times, mm. and they put their foot down and they said the band needs a hotel room. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fine one. They were very adamant about that. You can't. Now, ever... When you say the band needs a hotel room, didn't the band have a hotel room? No, no, no. We know. <laughs> what, what, did they, what were they thinking? Where the well, fuck they, are you going to sleep? In the van. In the van. In yeah. The van. <laughs> but the, 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 there was no room in the van because the van was full of suicide's gear. We, part of the deal was we, would, we, were, we were the support band, the, the uh, roadies, and the PA, and the, and the PA, the PA high guys. Yeah. So we supplied everything. And that's how we got the tour. So we couldn't have slept in the van if we wanted to because all, all, all the shit was in there. So they were very adamant. They said, you can't not put these boys in a fucking hotel room, you know. And they were very adamant about that. And one day we didn't get paid. So between them and our drummer, Tommy O'Donnell, who was also very um, ballsy, ballsy they, just went into, <laughs> they just went into the promoter's office and, and threatened him, basically. And the, and the, and the money appeared. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and you learn you you do learn on the circuit um, in the when we started off. You you have to develop a thick skin, and you, de- yeah, you have yeah. to develop you know a, a fairly aggressive attitude, uh, if only in self defence, because uh, everybody's out to. I mean, there was one, at one gig, I shan't name where it is, but the landlord was arrested because when they, if they found all the ba- lots of bands that had been playing down there, half their gear was up in his bedroom. It was nicking it. He was nicking it while <laughs> and clothes and clothes. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So you know, I you, think we're getting to the core of what was behind yeah, you know, it now. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you have to, if when you leave the stage uh, for after sound check, you have to take all your pedals with you in case they get mixed. Even we, we occasionally yeah. we get an encore. Um, in, in the early days, occasionally. And we were at the Rock Garden, we got an encore. And when I walked back on, all my pedals are gone. Yeah. Someone had just leaned over and nicked all my pedals. Yeah. And just fucking walked out of the club. Yeah. And so we, we, we grew a fairly um, aggressive attitude towards the industry. Um, we, we, uh, we, just, we were quite trusting to begin with um, and still too trusting for years, a few, few years after that. Mm. But overall, we're, we're fairly cynical and... Um, and we're quite um, aggressive in certain in certain um, situations. If, people, yeah. if we think people are just taking the piss, then we have um, explained to them in no uncertain terms that this is, could end very badly for them. So we have we do we have gone down that road a couple of times because we just won't we won't be um, fucked around like that. We yeah, just I think that's yeah. why management has always had trouble. We, well, mm-hmm. That's why we haven't really settled with management at yeah. all ever. Yeah. Because management rarely, or the management we've had, rarely sees things as we do, um, and that's where the, the that's where the friction uh, and they're compromised. People, and management are always everybody's compromised one way or the other. Yeah. Um, so, and we had one guy I think who um, who was charging us for flights to go and do some business on our behalf to Germany or wherever it was, and then we found out he was also doing business for about four other bands. Probably charging them. And charging them too. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you, you just live and learn. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I think the music industry for a long, long period, and maybe even today, because I'm not that associated with it anymore, but for a long, long period was very corrupt. It always reminded me of my father, who was a market trader. And, you know, and behind the market trader, there were always friends of his who were, would disappear. Yes. Yes. We'd never know whatever happened happened to the man with the teddy bears down the road and and all these sort of things. Um, One of the things very briefly is that because the, I mean, back in the day, there was a load of money swashing, sort of swilling around in the business, you know, one way or the other with tours and massive sales and all that kind of stuff. So that it, it attracted a whole load of, of, of fairly unpleasant people who thought they could make a killing fairly quickly. Mm. The music industry does not have that, that, that money anymore, anything like it used to. And bands certainly don't because the, the sales have dropped and t- t- touring is much more difficult and expensive than it ever was. So you, it, it's probably not a bad time now in terms of you know, anybody that was in the business for the wrong reasons has probably you know, gone into... Something else now. I don't Maybe. know what. You know. So I, I don't know. We hope so. Yeah, we, we would hope so. The business doesn't need uh, doesn't need people like that. But generally speaking, you know, we I, I think most bands live and learn. You get every band gets ripped off in one way or the other. Mm. Our story is not particularly unique. You know. No, it's not. Yeah, well, I think one thing that is unique about it is that you cut your teeth 
over the years in various areas, like Just Richard as a session musician. Yeah, yeah. And maybe you can tell me what a session musician, I can't even say the word, what a <laughs> session musician really does. Um, are they are they just there to actually play what the artist wants, or do they contribute in some way? Well, I mean, the only the only way I play. I mean, I'm slow, so I'm not the most um, you know the most uh, economically viable session musician out there, <laughs> you know. Um, and I wouldn't want to do anything where I couldn't put ideas in. I mean, that, that's the whole that, that's the enjoyable part. I think it depends what kind of. Imagine if you're the bass player with Steve Dan, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's note by note by note and you missed a quaver there. So can we do it again? And all that, you know, that's my impression. Um, whereas if you're a, you know, if you're the bass player with Lou Reed or somebody, then it's probably a little bit looser. Yeah. It depends on the act, but I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I enjoy coming up with ideas. So it just, you know, just being instructed to do this or to do that would not appeal to me greatly. So yeah, what did you, what did you bring to Boy George? What did you bring to Mick Dagger? Well, the, the, the Mick Jagger stuff we both did, and that that wasn't a, they weren't studio sessions; they were promo sessions. Yeah, yeah. They were promo gigs, um, and same with David Bowie. Um, but the stuff um, stuff I did with Dylan was live, so that was just basically playing what had already been pre-recorded on tracks. They just wanted the track to sound the same. So I was the second guitar player. Uh, Red Beach was the first guitar uh, guitar one. So I was basically doing rhythm parts, pretty basic stuff, really. Um, and so we, so we, we were never, we were never in the studio. We were never hired in studios because people wanted to hear our ideas. Um, <laughs> that, that, that never happened. Um, no. and, and it does, we, we have used a lot of session players and they are generally incredibly competent musicians. Rarely are they very inventive. They are, they tend to have a, a way of playing and, and, or approach to music that's quite conservative. Um, you get you get exceptions like Phil Spaulding, who played bass with us. He was very inventive. We had a drummer called Chuck Saber, yeah. very inventive guy. Um, most of the guitar players we work with are very conservative and you know don't really think outside the box. Um, but we've been blessed. We've, we've worked with some very, very good players. But in terms of invention, uh, there's only there's only a handful who've been very inventive. Yeah, I, th- I think in actual fact we learn more from that experience with them working with those people. Yes, yeah, we learn more from that than we did um, from you know doing the doing the sort of the the, the stuff with the, with the band in the early days. With so, them. what did you learn? Well, I learned that basically there's nothing particularly unique about it. There's nothing particularly. These people are all people. Yeah, that's what they are. David Bowie was just a bloke. You know, and so you know, when people get, I, I've never had a hero ever in my life, you know, because I recognize the simple fact that they're all people. And mm. as Bob Dylan said, even the president of the United States has to stand naked at some point. So once you get that in your head, and I remember when I did the Bowie thing, I walked past his Winnie Bagum and he was standing there in his underpants. And I just remember thinking, oh, it's a bloke. <laughs> it's just a bloke. Yeah. You know, and they would, I don't think David Bowie was like this, but there are certain stars out there who want us to believe there's something close to the angels something close to god they're not they're just people and uh, some people some of them are immensely gifted and some of them are less gifted yeah but they are just people we did a show with um with james brown in uh boston mm. and uh he, yeah. he uh he came, he, the limo drove up the side of the stage and he came out and became James Brown for 20 minutes. And, and, and same thing, he was just this guy, just this, this dude who'd been around a long time. He's got this brilliant legacy. 
He, he sort green of suit. He had a green suit and he did 20 minutes. The band played for about an hour and a half, but he only did 20 minutes. Yeah. And, um, and he was just a bloke and he said hi and bye and that. Do you know what I mean? He, he wasn't, he was just this guy who was, happens to be quite brilliant. Mm. Um, and I, and I think that's what we've, that's what we've discovered. We've done a lot of shows with a lot of different bands and, you know, all sorts of people. Um, and, and I met lots of famous sort of people. Most of them are just regular people. And m- most of them are quite nice. It's, the, the, the egos and stuff tend to happen in our experience, tend to happen look further down, further, the, down. further yeah. down the food chain, particularly, particularly bands that have been put together as a project where in fact they have no control because that's been, that's, that's, that, that's the, that's the deal. That's the nature of their deal. And they tend to be a little bit more egotistical and, and, and defensive and demanding and demanding because I think they know that in reality, they're not actually in control at all. Well, it's a spinal tap moment. Yeah, it? It when is, the, meat yeah. doesn't, the meat doesn't fit the role. He's obsessed with the meat fitting the role because that's the, that's where the only power he's got left. Yeah, left, right, yeah. you know, um, because there's a whole bunch of people around you telling you where to go, what to do. Mm. And also we've never been um, dazzled by the fame thing, particularly. Uh, we, we've, we've always uh, seen, not seen through it. That, that implies that we're special, but no, it's, it's just, it we doesn't like it. We just didn't like it really. You know, the red carpet thing. And I don't know. I just, it was, we just, maybe, I don't know what it is. I don't know. We just weren't, I remember once we went to, we were invited to a big red carpet thing and John Travolta was there and the whole thing, you know, and we get there, Leicester Square, back in the day, hundreds and hundreds, and hundreds of people, you know, the red carpet and the theatre, lights everywhere. And we got there and um, simultaneously our hearts just sunk. It was like, oh, this is going to be awful. This is going to be, we didn't think, oh, hey, this is going to be great. So we went, there's a pub just up the road from Leicester Square and we went and got bladdered in there. And completely, and then we managed to do it. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah we're drunk. So, yeah. Um, I love that red carpet thing because sometimes people walk up it and they don't get noticed, so they sit yeah. around the back and then they do it again, yeah. try it again, <laughs> and then you think, "Oh I my know. god, that's so sad." But do you think then, like the image that are, that the music industry can build up for you, whether it's yes. a record company or whether yeah. it's I don't know from your own management, can be, can be a dangerous thing for your own life. Oh, completely. Yeah, very much so. And also you start to think, first of all, you think that you think it's very easy to forget you're self-employed and you actually are in control of your own destiny because record labels and managers have no interest in letting you know that. So what happened with us when the, we, we, we had no intention of becoming famous or being celebrities. We just wanted to put a record out, which was I'm Too Sexy. That was it. And the nature of that record took us into very much a celebrity world, very much Saturday night, Friday night TV, tabloids we didn't know it was going to happen we had, and never talked about it no mentioned once i think we thought everybody did it <laughs> yeah thought, we did this is yeah how, this is how this is the business this is what yeah. it is and then you know gradually you realize over time actually you don't have to get up at five in the morning to do some cookery thing mm. you know on tv in the morning you don't you know if it's not part of what you are it's you know it, it's really really important to know who you are and, and not get sidetracked by the people around you. We definitely got sidetracked. And we got sidetracked in the, for the first four or five years. We were definitely sidetracked. Um, I mean, one of the things about I'm Too Sexy you've mentioned it already is the baseline is that yeah. you know there's this strong base in it. The mm. other thing is that you had a period of living in New York, which I think contributed to the idea. And also so. the fact that I don't know whether you owned a gym or you were working in a gym, but working. you're working in a gym, and yeah. and also that working in the gym contributed to the yes, idea. Can you put all those things together and tell me about how that really came up over those years? Um, 
Well, the New York thing, we went to New York to um, become famous. You know, that's that's where, well, that's oh, where, yeah, get a deal. Get a deal and do all something. that. Do something. <laughs> um, New York was really good for us, I think, looking back, because we were on our own. We had, mum and dad were not there to, to rescue us. We were on our own. Um, we were living in a, in a crack house, basically. And, um, uh, and when working, you know, I was working in a gym. Fred was working in some dodgy cafe down t- downtown. I was working on the, uh, in the Astor Place. In Astor Place. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I th- it, it put us on our metal a little bit. Um, and, and I think we became much more independent minded, independently minded, and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a little bit more aggressive, I think. Mm. Um, New York doesn't, it doesn't take prisoners back. It, well, yeah. may, I don't know what it was slightly, now. it was just pre Giuliani. So mm. it was very, it was still, you know, the, the rotten apple, if you like. It was very, loads of, loads of um, violence on the streets. It was very fast paced. It was, it, it, it wasn't in the slightest bit empathetic to your how you were feeling that day no. and we learned the hard way we, we came up we came across some, some pretty scary people and um and we just thought well we got about that we, we, we richard worked in nails which was a very famous club um we worked uh, richard worked in the gym i worked in uh, uh, art cafe and somewhere else and and these were all quite these were, the art cafe i worked in was sort of where the um the a lot of the um, traders would, would would come and drink and eat. <clears throat> Lots of beautiful people floating around and stuff. And um, and that's and also we got involved in where well, we, we we met quite a few sort of um, not celebs but they the nightclub people. You know the, you know that, that lot. And so it was it sexy came out of that. It was it, we, yeah there were these people that were basically too sexy for their shirt. Yeah yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, then when we got back to the UK, we working in the gym. And so you come a lot across, across a lot of hedonisms, narcissism, um, and that's partly when we started writing the lyrics. That's what we fed off. We just yeah. thought this, this is what this is about, you know. Well, I think. And you threw away all the tracks in the past. You said that yeah. earlier that you decided you didn't want to do anything you'd done before. You wanted yes. to do something completely different. Yes, that, yeah. that's pretty much. That's... We did uh, the chorus of Deeply Dippy. Oh my, I love that one. That's, a, that, that's an old chorus we had yeah. from, a, from a previous song. And that just happened to fit that song. So we did, we, we rescued that. But yeah. everything else was, was brand new. Yeah. One of the things that's weird, I think, is that people say to us, oh, you know, when it comes to this whole COVID thing, oh, you know, we're really surprised you guys are speaking out, you know, because I'm too sexy, you look so... I think people assume that we were going to be pliant, either stupid or pliant or something. Mm. Um, but actually, you don't, you don't make a record like I'm too sexy if you're obsessed with what people think. No, you don't, know. You just don't, because it's... You, it's it, it, when I listen, when I think about the track, it's it's so bizarre, really. And I didn't realise that it was bizarre at the time, but we had nothing to lose, and we didn't really care what people thought. Well, I, th- I think it was obviously ironic, but then I'm English, so yes, I yes. sort of see the ar- irony. But I can imagine in America at that time... Yeah, but maybe it was seen as something else because well, irony doesn't really exist so much. It no, it doesn't. doesn't. No. no, I mean the Americans were overall way more supportive than the the, the music industry and the media in America were way more supportive than the UK. Mm. Uh, from the very off, we had uh, endless problems with the media and certainly the music business. Music business couldn't fucking stand us, um, and uh, I can see why now. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, and, and even it was. I think it was partly because they knew they'd all thrown away the opportunity to sign a very lucrative song. Uh, I think that that annoyed them that we proved them to be so wrong, um, and also it was because we we 
we called them out. We just we we were pretty um, not unpleasant. What's the word? We, uh, we did we we weren't in awe of them at all. And once Sexy kicked off, we and when Sexy was massive, we still weren't signed. It was only a letter of intent. It was an email of intent. And suddenly Sony and the rest of the sort of it bods steamed in with crazy money to lure us away. We said, well, you didn't want it in the first place. Why do you want it now? So it's clearly not a musical decision. You just want you just want the money. So we stuck with the independent label, which was a good idea and a bad idea e- equally. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but it, but it, it, um, it dawned on us very quickly how our, we weren't that popular with the industry because when we went to the Brits in 90... Three or was it two? Uh, three, I think. Two or three. I, I yeah. can't remember. No, two. It was two. Was it two? And we were clearly the breakout band of that year. We clearly were. We had number one in America, as a, you know, and they just blanked us. Brits just blanked us. So we, at, at that point, I just thought, okay, we're not part of the BPI, this record label. Um, we don't fit. This is this is how this is going to go. I think it's the fitting it, thing. That, yeah. That, I think it's the fitting yeah. thing. We just, you know, we weren't pretty. We weren't 22. We didn't <laughs> dance. Do you know what I mean? We just, you know, we were a bit mouthy. Mm. I just think we, we, we you know, and the, the, the track that I'm Too Sexy was a bit of some, it's, it's a Marmite track. You know, you either love it or you hate it. Part two of the Right Said Fred podcast looks at their lives after I'm Too Sexy and how today their legacy is starting to be seen in a different context. If you like the podcast, please rate and look out for the other interviews. I'll see you soon. If you're prescribed Nurtec ODT, Remedjapant 75 milligrams for migraine attacks, does the fear of running out of medication stop you from treating every migraine attack? If so, ask about two eight-packs per month. That's 16 tablets, and most insurance plans cover it. Nurtec ODT is approved for the acute treatment of migraine attacks and preventive treatment of episodic migraine in adults. Don't take if allergic to Nurtec ODT or any of its ingredients. Allergic reactions can occur even days after using and include trouble breathing, rash, and swelling of the face, mouth, tongue, or throat. Most common side effects were nausea and indigestion stomach pain. A maximum dose of 75 milligrams can be taken daily to treat migraine attacks or every other day to prevent them. The safety of using more than 18 doses of Nurtec ODT in a 30-day period has not been established. For full prescribing information, call 1-833-4-NURTEC or visit nurtech.com. Double the packs to treat more migraine attacks. Ask your doctor if two eight-packs of Nurtec ODT is right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.